He was a man's man, a true soldier, a war hero, leader of the Rough Riders, fighting in the Spanish army, fighting the Spanish army in Cuba. He was a well-respected historian and author. Um, He penned a a popular book in his day titled The Naval War of 1812. He was a politician serving as the 33rd governor of the state of New York. And in 1901, the 26th president of these United States. At 42 years of age, Teddy Roosevelt remains the youngest man to serve as president of this country. He was known to walk in the evenings with a dear friend, a companion, um, a naturalist by the name of William Beebe. And on their walk, it was usual for them to look up into the skies, searching for a tiny patch of light near the constellation Pegasus. And they would chant, this is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than ours. And then Roosevelt would turn to Bibi and said, Now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. Let's think about small for just a moment. If if we were to represent the size of our earth with a peppercorn, the sun would be the size of an 8-inch ball 26 yards from peppercorn earth. A quarter of a football field. Now given the average speed of commercial airliner traveling from peppercorn earth to the sun would take 21 years of non-stop travel. Let's think a little bit bigger. Using the same scale, the star closest to our solar system would be 4,000 miles from peppercorn earth. That's from Portland to Caracas, Venezuela. Or if we were to fly over Canada, over Greenland, over Iceland, 4,000 miles would drop us in the ocean just shy of Scotland. That's the closest star to 
peppercorn earth. Now, the closest galaxy, Andromeda, is 2.3 million light years away from us. Now, we're not talking about a rate of, tra- a rate of travel like a, like a rocket. Oh, no, we're talking about something far, far faster. Light travels at the speed of 186, 200-some-odd miles per second. And we're talking 2.3 million light years from where we are to reach the next closest galaxy. In Roosevelt's day, scientists thought that there were some 100 uh, 100 million galaxies. Today, scientists uh, postulate uh, that it's, uh, it's, it's closer to billions of galaxies. And here we are on the vast expanse of peppercorn earth. Do you feel small? Mm. Listen to what Scripture says about God and the heavens. Psalm 147. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Think about it. He knows Numbers, names, all of the stars. And here you are, just one on peppercorn earth, and he numbers the hairs on your head. Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? That you take thought of him, the son of man, that you care for him. If you have your copy of the scriptures, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21. The prophet writes, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. 
Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I will be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of his, the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. David declared, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament. And something about the firmament. Many many in our day would argue that the world came about, the universe came about, the, the entirety of the cosmos came about as a result of a random accidental chance occurring. Question. Did chance bring about our universe? Answer, not a chance. Chance um, is not a thing. Chance is nothing. It has no ontology. It has no being. It has has no essence. It isn't anything. It can't do anything. Oh, but we know one who has done it all. And his name is Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. And we see it displayed in in the world, the universe around us. His supremacy, his power, his might, his majesty, his glory is revealed. When Jesus was here on earth. He was all about the glory of God. And the things that he did reveal his glory. Every miraculous deed that Jesus did was a display of glory. It was pointing toward the glory of God. Now, for just a minute, let me rehearse what for most of you will be the obvious. Let's talk for just a minute about a miracle and define it carefully. We sometimes use the word miracle flippantly when we see a newborn baby. Oh, it's such a miracle. Rubbish. Babies aren't miracles. That's the normal process of things. 
Babies are wonderful things. I love babies. But that's not a miracle. A miracle is the setting aside, the temporary setting aside of the laws of physics established by God running this whole globe for a purpose. A miracle is a rare, unique work whereby things stop as they normally go so that we might see something particular, namely God's power, His might, His glory. Consider the Israelites leaving Egypt. They got up to the, the Red Sea and they were, they were stuck between a rock and a hard place, if you will. They were being chased by the Egyptian army. And God said to Moses, stretch out your rod. And he did so. And the waters of the Red Sea parted. What? And it was as though there was, was a, 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 a glass wall that was holding the waters back. And they walked through the Red Sea on dry land. How is that possible? My friends, that's a miracle. That's the temporary setting aside of the normal laws of nature in order for God to make a point. Joshua chapter 10, we read about the the sun standing still for about a day. In our modern cosmology we, of, of heliocentricity, we would, we would say that the earth stopped spinning. What? That's right. It was a miraculous deed. Why? To declare the power, the authority, the glory of God? Jesus came down from heaven and took on the form, the bodily form of a man. How, how, how is that possible? That's the point. For man, it's impossible. We've never seen it before. It was a miraculous deed. John chapter 9, we read about Jesus healing a man who had been born blind. We don't know the details of why he was blind. Maybe he didn't have eyes. Maybe he didn't have a, a, a retina. Maybe he didn't have an optic nerve to connect with his brain. There was something there from birth caused him to not see. And instantly, Jesus gave sight to this man so that he was perfectly able to see. 2020 vision, no glasses necessary. That was a miracle. This morning as we open up the scriptures, in John chapter 11, we find Jesus about ready to do another miracle. Unheard of. You're kidding. No way. That couldn't happen. Yes, it did. Because we haven't seen it before, hadn't even heard of such a thing before, um, doesn't mean that it didn't exist. It existed because God did it to bring glory to himself. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you, you, you will remember the details In John chapter 10, 
Jesus is um, uh, confronted by some Jews who were offended that he claimed that he was one, one in essence with the Father. They said, that's blasphemous. They picked up stones to kill him. Jesus left. He left their presence. He left Jerusalem. While he was gone, away from Jerusalem, he got a note, chapter 11, a a note from two, two people that were very dear to him, sisters, Martha and Mary. And they announced to Jesus, by way of a messenger, the one whom you love, our brother Lazarus, is sick. Oh yeah, he was sick. He was very sick. He was sick unto death. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us in, um, in verse 14 of chapter 11, Lazarus is dead. Now, shock of shocks. Rather than going to Jerusalem, or specifically to the bedroom community of Bethany, just two miles away from Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives, rather, rather than going to, to the home of, of Martha and Mary, um, he lingers. He lingers for two days. And then he says, let's go to him. And so last week we looked at Jesus arriving uh, outside of Bethany. He called for Martha to come and, and they interacted and Jesus asked her, uh, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me lives uh, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks Martha. Martha leaves, whispers to her sister. Mary goes out to meet with Jesus, but, but, but she was in such a hurry to go out and see him, uh, hearing that he, w- he had finally come. Uh, everybody followed. But even though Martha was a little... Um, her, her plans were thwarted. God's plans were not thwarted in the least. He wanted all of these people to come to follow her. Our text begins in verse 38. But just to give us um, a running start, let's, let's begin reading at verse 33. When Jesus saw her, speaking of Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, uh, but by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I, not see, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe 
that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. I divided this section into three parts. You'll find them in your notes. Jesus' conversation with Martha, Jesus' communion with the Father, and Jesus' command to Lazarus. We find in our text in verse 38 uh, a, a, a a verb that's repeated that we found last week in verse 33. In both places, we find that Jesus was deeply moved. And you remember from last week, uh, the literal meaning of that verb is, um, or or literally refers to uh, the snorting of a horse. Figuratively, it is used of a a visceral, gut-felt response of anger, indignation, outrage. There was something very deep in Jesus that was moving him to, to verbalize a discontent, a a a lack of satisfaction, indeed an anger. What was he angry about? What was he he so indignant about? It may be, we're not told exactly, it may be that Jesus was was angry at the consequences of sin because not only does, does sin bring death, but great pain to those who are left behind. It may also be that that Jesus was angry because of their unbelief. Because many of these Jews were grieving as though they were pagans without hope. Deeply moved within, Jesus came to the tomb. When I was in Israel, I saw tombs sometimes simply by the side of the road. And they were tombs probably of this nature. There's hardly any real estate in in Israel that's not rocky and hilly. And and so uh, the the people of Israel did not do what what dumb Americans do. Dumb Americans um, turn um, flat, farmable land into gravesides. Grave, grave, graveyards. Um, the Jews used the hills, and, and sometimes there would be a natural cavern. Um, this was, is identified as a cave. Uh, sometimes there is a, a carving into the hillside. And when they do that, they will often make shelves for a number of different family members. Six, nine, twelve. It's a family crypt, if you will. 
And this is probably one of those. We don't know if Lazarus was the first one in this particular uh, gravesite. Probably not. And in front of this tomb would have been cartwheeled a stone to keep out wild animals and looters. When Jesus arrived, he instructed the people that were probably closest to the grave, remove the stone, roll it back. Immediately, Martha, obviously close to Jesus, protested. Verse 39 reads, Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for days. There there are two important things stated in verse 39 that, that I need to bring to your attention. The description of Martha, first off, it says that she is, was the sister of the deceased. That verb, deceased, is actually a participle. And here's what's important about it. It's in the perfect tense. Perfect tense means that there's something that happened in the past that has present continuing results in the present. Here's what it means. Lazarus died, and he's still dead. And this is the second thing we need to take, take note of. Act, her actual statement. I, I, I love the King James. Uh, Lord, by this time... He stinketh. I don't know, maybe it's the junior high boy in me that just kind of likes that. But there there was uh, an acknowledgement that the body had begun to decay. You remember from last week, I detailed the teaching of the rabbis regarding uh, the dead. Um, the, the rabbis taught, uh, apart from the scriptures, you'll not find anything in the scriptures about this, but the rabbis taught that when a person died, the soul of that person hovered above the body for three days in hopeful anticipation that there would be some kind of resuscitation, a coming back to life of sorts. The the, the Jews uh, did, did not embalm uh, the, uh, the, the bodies of their deceased like their Egyptian neighbors did. When, when um, a, a deceased in the Egyptian community um, died and that person was to be embalmed, they would remove the, the bowels of the individual, they would remove the brain. And they would soak the body in a chemical solution for 70 days. And after that pickling process was completed, then they would bury their dead. The Jews buried on the day they were, um, the day they died. The, The rabbis further taught that after those three days, on the fourth day, not only would the spirit uh, the, the soul of the, of the individual leave, 
But the body would begin to decay, and there would be a, an olfactory realization that uh, there is rottenness here. They buried the individual, and after four days, all hope was gone. There, there, was, there was nothing else to be done. So Martha go, is, is going off of that, that understanding that teaching that she had received from the rabbis, even though it's apart from anything we find in Scripture. Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. That's the magic number. Martha had, had no idea what Jesus was going to do. She didn't know if, if, if Jesus wanted to just have one last look at her brother's face. For closure, maybe, Right? Jesus, don't, you, you, you realize, don't you, that he's been dead four days and we know that things are not going to be pleasant in there. Notice what Jesus says. Verse 40. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? We don't have record of anything close to this that Jesus said. Certainly not in, um, uh, in, in John chapter 11. Now, it may be that he did say this exactly to Martha when she came out to meet him outside of, of uh, uh, the confines of the village. That's possible. We don't have record of that. But this is certainly in keeping with the tenor of who Jesus is, and what he is all about. Um, John chapter 11, verse 4. Jesus says the sickness is not to end in death, speaking of Lazarus' sickness, but for the glory of God. Look at chapter 8. No, no, chapter 12, verse 18. For this reason... No, 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 no. Um, where is it? There's another one in verse 12. Here it is, verse, uh, verse, verse um, 28. Father, glorify your name, Jesus says. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Look at chapter 13. Verse 31, therefore when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And we look through um, uh, John chapter 17, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and we find uh, Jesus um, and the Father uh, being glorified this is Jesus was all about glorifying the Lord, magnifying the Lord, putting him forward. Now, when getting getting back to verse um, forty in our text, Jesus says, "Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God?" 
we, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Martha didn't know that at the time. So to, uh, similarly for the, for the rest of the people. They, they didn't know what, what, was, what was going to happen, what, what to expect. Now when you see a miracle... You may not have. You may think you have. You probably have never had or seen one. But if you were to see a miracle like this one, you'd go, ooh, ah, that's amazing. That's incredible. That's what we would expect from everybody there. What? Are you kidding me? What? Ooh, wow, amazing, astonishing. Incredible. Now, when Jesus says, um, you will see the glory of God, he's expecting that believers are going to say, ooh, ah, that's amazing, that's astonishing, that's, a, that's wonderful. That is something that God did. You see what's added Yes, we are, we are enamored, we are overcome, we are, our, our senses are in overload over seeing some miraculous display of power and authority. But all of the praise, all of the acknowledgement that God is its author and he is the one authorizing this event, all of the glory goes to him. God did this. Didn't I say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? If you don't believe, all you're going to see is a miracle. And you're going to go, ooh, ah, isn't that wonderful, isn't that amazing? But if you believe, you will see the glory of God. You will see the same miracle and you will go, ooh, ah, isn't that wonderful, isn't that amazing? But you will also say, God did that. You will see the glory, a manifestation of his power and his majesty right before your eyes. The real significance, the real um, meaning of this miracle that is about to happen is realized, appreciated, understood, known only by faith. Second page of your notes. They removed the stone, verse 21, and then Jesus raised his eyes in prayer. Read the prayer with me again. Middle of verse 41. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Notice what Jesus does not say. 
He does not pray that the Father would raise Lazarus from the dead. This is not a prayer of petition. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. God in his triune-ness already decreed what was going to happen. There's no surprise here to Jesus, to the Father. You go back earlier in chapter 11. Jesus knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. So Jesus is not praying that the Father would use him to raise Lazarus from the dead. To do so would reduce Jesus to the role of a prophet or an apostle. Oh, and he's so much more than that. So Jesus gives a prayer of thanksgiving that he and the Father are perfectly in sync. They both know what the will is, the the divine will is for Lazarus. And Jesus prays what he prays for the benefit of those hearing. That they would know that Jesus, the Son, and God the Father are of one essence. They are one, they have the same will. And that will is that this dead man come back to life. Now, I need to to tell you something that I found this week. In my study of this particular prayer, I came upon this particular statement I'm about ready to read to you from a well-respected Swiss theologian um, he, he wrote this, and, and I have to tell you that this poured jet fuel on my uh, biblical and theological sensibilities and then tossed in a match. Here's the statement. Miracles are just so many answered prayers. Let me read that again. Miracles are just so many answered prayers. Here is the 21st century Christianese corollary to that statement. Ready? Prayer changes things. How many of you have uttered that nonsensical statement? Prayer changes things? Miracles are just so many answered prayers. Now, if I was to say that, it would require a ream of paper to explain it and redefine all kinds of things. Let me make several points. Point number one, per definition, a miracle is a unique, rare intrusion into the human condition. Point number two. If there is a miracle given, God is its author. God is the one who changes. God is the one who alters the laws of physics. Not my prayers. Now, 
for balance, point number three, I need to also state at the same time that God uses means to accomplish his ends. In other words, God will use my my praying to accomplish his purposes. Jesus told that we are are to pray, not um, uh, your kingdom come, not my will be done, but yours on earth just as it is in heaven. I am participating in his kingdom work. Um, when, when, when I communicate the gospel, when I speak the gospel to an unsafe person, God is using my voice, my person, my, my voice, I think I already said that, to communicate his truth to an unbeliever. Now, God doesn't need to use me to save another person. Um, We can read in Scripture that he's used a donkey to speak his will in the past, and he can do that again. But he delights to use his people to bring a little bit of heaven down here on earth. Point number four. But so many well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians think if they gather a whole bunch of people together and they pray for X or they pray for Y, um, that just due to the vast number, a God will somehow have to capitulate and do the will of those who are praying. To expand on that idea, Let me start another list. Point number one. God always and only does his will. Point number two. His will is established from eternity past. Point number three. No amount of praying, pleading, crying, fasting, bloodletting will alter God's will. God delights to use his people to accomplish his will. My will or my praying changes nothing. Even well intentioned praying, it will never perform the miracle. Never. Miracles are just so many answered prayers. No. This is not something that I do. I might participate in it. And God delights in that. You see, the the, the more people that we get to pray for X or Y simply means that there will be more people giving glory to God for what He does. And in that we celebrate. We should expand how many people are praying for X or Y. But it's not to twist God's arm to get him to do something. I 
put this verse in your, in your notes for you to consider. Luke chapter 17, verse 10 says this. Jesus is talking. He says, so you too, when you, when you do all the things which you are commanded to do, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Be that praying, fasting, giving, helping, serving, whatever that might be. I'm simply seeking to be obedient. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about the glory of God. Back in our text. Point number three, Jesus' command to Lazarus. And when he said these things, verse 43, he, that is Jesus, cried out with a loud voice. Why a loud voice? Jesus could have whispered and accomplished the same thing. Jesus could have thought a thought and accomplished the same thing. Why a loud voice? When he raised Lazarus' daughter from death, no loud voice. When he raised the widow's son from death, no loud voice. Now, on both of those occasions, those two young people were not, um, had not been dead for four days. Oh, so is the fourth day something special? Does he have to awaken Lazarus? Does something else have to take place before the miracle can take place? Why the loud voice? It's for the benefit of those that were listening. It had nothing to do with Lazarus. It had nothing to do with, with his conquering of death. It was a voice of authority for the other people that were watching, listening, that they would know who is the author of that authority. Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44 tells us that the, this, this guy who died, he came forth. He's bound, hand, foot. His face was, was, was all covered up. And... and uh, there have been many, many people who, many commentators who, who have repeated this. Uh, I, I was able to trace it back to at least the fourth century uh, AD, uh, where um, uh, one of the church fathers named Basil said, um, there, This is a miracle in a miracle. The, the miracle was, the, the primary miracle was Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, but the miracle within the miracle is that he came out of the tomb all bound up. He had to float in order to get out. He was all bound up. Well, that just, that just is assuming that he was, he, his legs were bound together. What if, they, what if they wrapped the burial spices to mask the odor of death? What if they, what if they, they wrapped the, those burial spices uh, with the linen cloths around each leg? so that he could kind of stumble out. Yeah, yeah, better, better. 
And Jesus said to them, end of verse 44, unbind him and let him go. Now, Jesus was identified earlier in this chapter as, as having a special love, special friendship with, with Lazarus. Does, doesn't it make sense to you that Jesus would have uh, commanded that he rise, come out of the tomb, and then Jesus would be there to meet him? I mean, I mean any good preacher would do that, right? You'd be there and just you'd give him a hug? Welcome! Man, I missed you! It's so good to see you! No. Jesus doesn't do that. He tells other people, unbind him and let him go. Why? Why didn't Jesus just go up there? These people are in shock. I mean, it's, it's the fourth day. They've all been taught by the rabbis. There's no hope here. He is dead, not just mostly dead, he's all dead. And as a matter of fact, his body is decaying and he stinketh. Oh, I had to get it in again. Um, Jesus called these people that were there to unbind him because they wanted them to touch, smell, confirm. Is this really Lazarus? Is, is this a sideshow? Is this really happening? These people are the confirming witnesses of a miracle. Jesus wanted to make sure they were the first ones to be there, unwrap him, talk with him, look him in the eye, and make sure this guy is fully alive and fully functioning and he died four days ago. How is that possible? You know what I find interesting in this, this whole, this, this whole uh, event? It's where the period is at the end of verse 44. Unbind him and let him go. Period. What? There's no, there's no celebration in the end zone. There's no high fives. There's no record of, a, of, a, of an emotional reuniting of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. There's, there's not the, the crowd cheering around them, standing, high-fiving, clapping. There's no, there's no um, um, a publisher there to, to scribble out a, a, a quick book deal to tell uh, the world of what it's like to be dead for four days and now to be alive. None of that. Now, if Hollywood were writing the story, all of that would be included. But there's not a word. It ends so abruptly. With, with, without any mention of any of the human um, emotions or the human factor at all. There is this note at verse 25, 45. Many of the Jews who came to Mary saw what Jesus had done, believed on him. So we see some of the result. The point is, it's not about Lazarus. 
The story is not about Martha. It's not about Mary. They certainly are uh, contributors to the drama, to be sure. But it's not about them. Miracles are not about the one that is receiving the miraculous work. It's all about God. He is the one who who is to receive all of the glory. All of the honor, all of the applause is to go to Him. He is the author. He is the one who has authorized this miracle. It's His work. He has set aside the work of uh, the, uh, the, the laws of physics temporarily in order to bring attention to Himself. My friends, think, think about your life. The pain, the affliction, the, the, the trauma, the difficulty that, that you experience. And you call people to pray. And you have friends that are eager to pray for you, and they do so. Even the answer to that prayer is not about you. You benefit from it, to be sure. And there's great glory in that. But we can't forget the fact that it's all about God's glory. That's what we're here for. To to pray and to work as though um, I I, I somehow contribute to uh, the work of God is nothing short of thievery. It's stealing glory from the Lord. To think that by my work and by my praying, I accomplished this, I contributed to God's work. Well, I I may have contributed, but but the honor, the praise, the glory, all belongs to Him, not me. While He was on His deathbed, on this peppercorn earth. David Brainerd, 29 years of age, former uh, missionary to Native Americans, son-in-law of the famed Jonathan Edwards. When David Brainerd was on his deathbed, he wrote this. My heaven is to please God and glorify Him and give all to Him, and to be wholly devoted to His glory. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. It is no matter where I should be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high or low seat there, but to live and please and glorify God. Believers in every generation can do nothing less. Let's pray. Father, as you have ordained the end, you have ordained the means to to get to that end. You have chosen to use us We thank you for that. 
spare us from anything that would cause us to steal glory from you. Forgive us of that. All attention, all praise, all honor belongs to you. When we see your hand at work, we must point out that this is your hand. Open our eyes and allow us to see that. Remind us of that reality. That at the end of the day, there would be many more that would come to faith in the Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.